up next week where we left off. So if you're there, go ahead and say amen, and we will begin. Uh, so our study of Mark is bringing us ever closer to the moment when the Lord Jesus will give his life for sin and for sinners on the cross. And as Jesus approaches that hour, um, events in his life begin to move forward at an incredible pace. Things start happening very quickly. And at these la as these last events unfold, uh, we're allowed to witness some of the most heinous and yet some of the most holy events being played out uh, side by side in this passage that we're going to be in tonight. Uh, and I would dare say that this passage is one, of, is one of the most holy and sacred passages within the Word of God. And by that I mean within the four Gospels, this moment in time that's explained, and it's explained basically the same in all four of the Gospels. Um, they're kind of, they differ in wording, um, but it is a holy and sacred text that we're going to be in tonight. And we're going to be focusing on what happens uh, when they arrive to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, on that night, Gethsemane became more than a garden where Jesus and his men spent some time. This was not the first time that they had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. But on that night, Gethsemane became a place where eternal business was transacted for the glory of God, for you and for me. Business happened uh, in this text that we're reading tonight. So let's go ahead. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry you here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he comes and finds them sleeping and said unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Could not you watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he comes the third time and said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he who betrays me is at hand. So we know now uh, what is about to take place. And the name of this garden, as I mentioned earlier, was Gethsemane. And it probably belonged to a friend of the Lord's. Uh, while it 
uh, is famous in our day. It still exists <clears throat> outside of the city of Jerusalem. But in the Lord's day, it was probably a small garden um, enclosed by a wall and guarded by a gate. It was the place Jesus visited often with the disciples, and you can read of that in more detail in the Gospel of Luke. But Gethsemane seemed to have been a refuge for the Lord. It seemed to be a place where he could find uh, some solitude from the crowds, right, and the ministry that occupied his life. It was a place where he could find a private moment to pray to his father. It was a sanctuary from the attacks of his enemies, and it was a place of refreshment from the long days of ministry. It was a special place for the Lord and his men. Those places are needed in our lives. So, Tonight, I want you to think, do you have that kind of place that you can go to? It doesn't have to be a garden. It can be somewhere at your house, but somewhere where you can just go and get along. You know those special places where you can just go and you just, you know when you go there, you're going to meet the Lord, right? Those places are needed in our lives. And the name Gethsemane is Aramaic uh, in its origin, and the word means olive press. And Gethsemane was and is a place where olive trees grew and produced their fruit. The olives were collected and placed in a press. And then that olive oil was extracted from the olives under the intense pressure. Are we beginning to connect the dots here? The Lord had a reason for every place that he went. It was significant. He didn't do things just to do things. So the very name of the garden that he went to had a significant meaning in and of itself. Jesus and his men arrived at Gethsemane. He leaves eight of the disciples at the gate, right? But he takes with him those faithful three, Peter, James, and John, and they go deeper into the garden. So why were these men singled out? Uh, it seems that they were the leaders among the group, and I want to remind you that last week we read about, we learned about, you've already known about it, Peter denying the Lord, being told that he's going to deny the Lord three times, but yet the Lord still chose to use him. I find encouragement in that and realizing that there's not one of us that can go too far, that can commit too much sin that the Lord can't redeem us. And all we have to do is ask for his forgiveness. And the word tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to bring us right back into the family, not to set us on the sidelines and say, well, you stay here until you prove to me that you're really sorry right? No, immediately, knowing what was going to happen, knowing that Peter was going to betray him, the Lord included him in this great time of ministry, right? That, that encourages my heart. But Jesus gave these three a time of special ministry so they could be used to help others grow. And by the way, the Lord still does that. He still does that with people. He'll put some of his people into situations where they can see and hear and experience things that others can't even imagine. He does that so that he can use them then to teach others of his grace and his mercy and his sufficiency in every area of our lives. See, this was in fact the third time that these three had been singled out 
from the group. The first time was being when they were able to witness the power of Jesus when he raised uh, the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Remember that? We talked about it. The second time when they were chosen to witness the transfiguration of Christ, witnessing his glory, and now they will witness his passion, therefore his sufferings. Again, the Lord always has a reason in everything that we go through. It's not to be mean to us. It's not to, to single us out and, and make an example of us. No, it's so that we can in turn turn around and teach someone else. Show someone else. Tell someone else, I've been through this. Right? That's the justice of God. That's his mercy. Because we've come through it. And now we can help others come through it as well by telling them that he doesn't leave us, he doesn't forsake us, but he stays with us. So on this night, Jesus would enter into the olive press and the sweet oil of grace and submission to the Father would be extracted from the Lord's life. For Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane would be a place of intense pressures, and our text tells us about these pressures that he faced. But I want to tell you tonight that we must all come to that place called Gethsemane spiritually in our lives um, where all of our self-will is pressed out, right? We have to be in a place to where the Lord can just press us to show us that in and of ourselves we can do nothing that we need him, and that's kind of the same place that Paul talks about, that, uh, that moment of realizing, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? See, we wouldn't come to those places on our own. The Lord allows things to happen in our lives to press us, to get us out of us so that we can be filled with more of him, right? So here's some of the pressures. He had internal pressures. And the very language that the Lord uses in these verses tells um, the truth that Jesus is in a time of intense emotional and spiritual trial. I mean, can you imagine? We can't. We can't even begin to imagine what he's facing what he's going through. The word tells us that he was sore amazed, right? And this phrase means to be struck with terror. The word has the idea of terrified surprise, right? Uh, Jesus knew what was coming, but as he looked into the cup, and if you'll think back to week before last, we talked about that cup that he didn't drink during the, the Lord's Supper, which he normally would have drank. He waited until this moment. And as he looked into that cup, right, he was astonished and overcome with horror. No other human being has ever experienced such anguish, right, that came upon him. He was very heavy, the word tells us. It speaks of a condition of great distress and anguish, an experience where um, he was not familiar. He didn't feel at home in this. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. And this phrase literally means to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Have you been there? You've been overwhelmed with sorrow before? 
things just come about in your life and you don't realize, you don't know how you're going to make it, well, we can follow Jesus Christ himself and what he did. He looked unto the Father. He looked to the Lord in his time, his greatest trial, his greatest uh, time of, of trial on the earth. And, and I think it's, uh, it's just crazy how all of these, we get these words in our language. But the word periphery comes from this word um, because it means to be surrounded by overwhelming sorrows. Our peripheral vision, you know, everywhere you look, there was sorrow all around him. And then he said, even unto death. And this phrase uh, means that Jesus was at the point of death while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Word of God is telling us that Jesus was overwhelmed emotionally and spiritually by what he experienced as he entered the Garden that night. Think about the pressure the Lord was under. He knows He's about to, to suffer intense physical pain. He knows that he's about to become sin on a cross. He knows that he's about to be judged by his father. He knows that for the first time in eternity. Think about this. For the first time in eternity, there will be a breach in the unbroken fellowship he's enjoyed with his father. Right? That's what broke his heart the most. That that fellowship for a moment in time was going to be broken. The fellowship that had always been. He was going to be abandoned by his nation, his followers, and his father. He knows that he's about to be tried, rejected, and condemned to death by the very people he came to save. He knows that the most powerful human government on earth is about to turn its fury upon him. Jason talked about it. Uh, Sunday morning, I don't know if it's Sunday morning or Sunday night, but a lot of times the greatest hurt that one can endure is church hurt, being hurt in the church. And think about Jesus. He came to save the world, all of humanity, and yet he's about to be betrayed and crucified, lose his very life for the ones that he came to save the thoughts of what he's about to endure, literally overwhelm his mind and heart. It was a time of extreme internal pressure, but thank God that he endured. Thank God that he endured the spiritual and emotional trials and made it to Calvary's cross so that you and I might be saved, right? How did he endure? He kept looking to the Father, the author and finisher of his faith. Church, without him, we can't make it. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't make it. We can learn great lessons that in this time of trial, of hurt, of the most raw emotions one could ever imagine, what kept him looking unto Jesus, looking unto the Father, right? If he can make it, so can we. If the Lord could bear that, for, for his son. He's going to do it for us as well. We just have to, to keep on. We can't give up. There were external pressures 
going on at this time. When we read Luke's account of the Lord's suffering, Luke 22 and 44, uh, it says, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What's the answer to great trials, great storms in our life? Pray all the more. Pray all the more. I cannot stress to you the importance of a prayer life. You can't make it as a believer without a prayer life. You can make it for a time. But when you begin to enter into that Gethsemane, whatever, whenever, and however that may come about, if you do not have a prayer life, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're going to flee from it. You're going to run in the opposite direction. But if you will anchor your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, daily looking to him, going to him, he will see you through. As he prayed, he did so with such earnestness that the capillaries in his forehead began to burst. And sweat and blood mingled together and dropped to the ground. And in several of the commentaries I was reading, he couldn't have been but maybe a hundred feet from where Peter, John, and James were. So they witnessed this. They witnessed these he, him praying and seeing the drops of blood. That's talking. That was why Jesus allowed them to go deeper with him. He wanted them to see his passion for mankind. They wanted, he wanted them to see that they were worth what all he was going to go through. Right? To motivate them all the more to stay the course. While Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the body he lived in was a frail human body just like ours. Right? We can't forget that. His body knew weariness. It felt pain. It got hungry, sleepy, and tired. It was just a body, just like ours, right? And as Jesus prayed that night, the emotional and spiritual pressures that came upon him were almost more than his body could handle, but he did handle it. He survived the agony of Gethsemane, and he made it to Calvary. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? He made it to Calvary to die for our sins. And I don't have biblical uh, evidence of this, but again, many of the commentaries that I was reading support this thought um, that Jesus was under satanic attack in the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, I've referenced the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you've watched that, you will see uh, the actor that portrayed Satan. And I almost said something, and y'all probably know what I was going to say. He kind of looked like somebody who was a former president of ours. <laughs> but in that portion of the movie, you would see the, sh the, the shadow of Satan going back and forth uh, while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. No doubt this was a, a satanic attack, a demonic attack upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Uh, well, we know that in Luke, uh, it talks about an angel was sent uh, from heaven to strengthen the Lord while he was in Gethsemane because he was under such an attack. Uh, 
See, Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. This wasn't his first attempt at getting Jesus, trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross, right? Satan knew that Calvary was the ultimate goal of the Father. He knew that at Calvary, Jesus would defeat sin and Satan. And that's why he'd been trying to, to stop the cross ever since man sinned in the Garden of Eden, right? That's why he tempted Cain to kill Abel. That's why he tried repeatedly to corrupt the bloodline in which the Messiah would come through. That's why he moved Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem uh, when the wise men came looking for the king. That's why Satan tempted Jesus to take the crown and bypass the cross, right? Satan tried to kill Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. This again is why Satan fights the message of the cross so intently, so vehemently, so, uh, I mean, it's just crazy what he does, how he fights to stop this message from going forth. Why? Because he's smart enough to know our victory is found in the cross. And only in the cross. Salvation is found only in the cross. So why are we seeing every other path promoted so much? Right? Because Satan knows that if a believer will grab hold of this message and understand the truth, that everything that you and I will ever have need of is found in the cross of Christ, we will make it. We will be saved. Right? That's why he fights this so hard. That's why opposition is continually coming against those churches that are preaching the message of the cross. Satan is still attempting to silence that because that's where true victory lies. True freedom lies is in the cross. So there again were external pressures, but Jesus was victorious in Gethsemane. Amen. He overcame the devil so that you and I could overcome. Right? He said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome. We can be of good cheer tonight. We have hope that no matter what we're facing, as bad as it may seem, as bleak as it may seem, we have hope we can overcome because he overcame. Right? We've just got to keep our faith there. He didn't stop, and neither can we. In verses 35 through 36, we find, again, the place of prayer. Jesus leaves eight of his men at the gate, and he takes three deeper with him into the garden, and he tells these three, Peter, James, and John, to wait for him and to watch while he goes to pray. Now, the word means to give strict attention to something. So he's telling them that, that you need to keep your eyes open for trouble. You need to be watching for trouble. And they were to pray with him and probably for him as he prayed. Jesus went deeper into Gethsemane to pray. And the prayer, we're just going to look at it for just a moment. Jesus laid himself on the ground and he began to call on his father. He addressed him first as Abba right? And this is an Aramaic term that's equivalent to our word that we know as daddy, 
right? Uh, it's a word of intense intimacy is what it's speaking of. Uh, it's a word used in the Jewish households of the day, um, but it was a word that no Jew would ever use when speaking to God. But Jesus enjoyed such intimacy with his father that he felt comfortable calling him daddy, right? Uh, so when he says, Abba, Father, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, Father, Father. You know, he, he repeated it twice. And two, you can search these words out, and there's um, a tie to the Jewish uh, people and Gentiles. So when he uses it two times in a row, he's meaning Father of all. The Jews and the Gentile. Aren't you thankful that we were grafted in? <laughs> that we weren't left out? That we weren't orphans on our own, but he grafted us in. So when he said that word twice, that's what it means. That he's the father of all, of whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In him we have the same privilege. Paul says in Romans 8 and 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've been adopted. We're his. You read the Song of Solomon, and it's so beautiful, and it's talking about I am his, and, and he is mine. Right? It's a beautiful love story. And we have access to our Father. All we have to do is mention his name. Through Jesus, we have the same privileges that he enjoyed. We are brought into a place of absolute intimacy with the Father. But I want to tell you, our deepening of our relationship comes through suffering. We share in the sufferings of Christ, the Word tells us. And a lot of times... That uh, sharing, that, that feeling of, oh, that's my father, comes through times of suffering. Think about it. You wouldn't know him as healer if you had never been sick. You wouldn't know him as deliverer if you had never been bound. And it goes on and on and on. We get to know him, meaning we love him all the more. The more we know him, the more we love him. Because he continues to meet us at our point of need. Each and every need we have, he always meets us. And as Jesus prayed, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Now, when you read this prayer, don't think for an instant that Jesus is trying to get out of going to the cross. Because that's not what this means. That's not at all what this means. He was born for that purpose. He, he clearly stated that in the beginning of his ministry. He's come for the sick. He was born to die. He knew his purpose. And I want to tell you, knowing who you are in Christ will get you through any storm in life. Jesus knew who he was in Christ, in himself. And I know it sounds weird. Again, our minds, it's hard to understand it. But he knew who he was. He knew who his father was. And in knowing who we are and whom we have believed, we can make it through anything that comes our way. That's how the Lord designed it. That's how he, he, he made it work that way. 
But he's saying right here, uh, again, proclaiming that he knew he came to die, that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, he told the Pharisees in John 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. When you know that you know that you know, you can keep on. You can press on, right? If Jesus wasn't praying to avoid the cross, then what was he praying for in the garden that night? Well, in Matthew's account, he records uh, the Lord's words as saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, that's how Matthew records it. And it's possible that Jesus was asking if uh, accomplishing salvation another way was possible right? Uh, if there was another way, let me do it that way. That's, that's what that means. Think about it. Jesus is about to become sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I believe I referenced the scripture last week, for he has made him to be sin for us who knows no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. For the first time in eternity, he is going to be separated from his father. This broke his heart. He didn't want to break fellowship. He didn't want to break relationship with the father. Lord, is there any other way to where you're not going to have to turn your back on me? If there's any other way, I'll do it that way. That's what he's saying, right? Mark 15 and 34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, and I always say it wrong, Somebody help me. Elohi, Elohi, Yama, Sabatni. That was Bailey's phrase. I was going to ask him tonight. Sabatni, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These were the words that Jesus cried. Can you imagine his heart and how it was broken? So he's not trying to bypass the cross. He's not trying to find another way. It just hurt him so much to know that fellowship was going to be broken with the Father. Even just for a moment, it broke his heart. How concerned are we about breaking fellowship with the Lord? About breaking the heart of our Father? Right? We should be that concerned. It should break our hearts to know that we're breaking his heart. When all he wants is the best for us. What's best for us, that's what he wants. The cup represented all the wrath and hatred of God against sin. That cup symbolized the full, undiluted wrath of God that was about to be poured out on Jesus. Wouldn't you have cried out? If there's another way, Lord, just tell me and I'll do it. While the knowledge of all of that he was about to suffer physically, must have terrified the mind of Christ. He was not afraid of the pain of the cross. But the thought of becoming sin and being judged and abandoned by God was horrifying the sinless Son of God. Again, thinking, he did it all for me. He did it all for you. He didn't have to, but he did. 
He willingly laid down his life for us. I want to remind you again that Jesus is at the point of death in the garden. And when he said these words, it's possible that he was praying that he could live. Lord, just give me strength to live so that I can make it to the cross, right? He didn't want to die in the garden. He knew he came to go to the cross. And he needed the strength of the Lord to make it, right? He wanted to finish the task that he had been given by the Father. There was oppression at this time working against him. As I mentioned earlier, I think Satan was opposing him as he prayed. I believe that Jesus was under such intense satanic attack in the garden that he feared he might die right there. And it was a time of spiritual oppression like no other man has ever experienced. The text kind of tells us that Jesus prayed to the Father three times in the garden. Uh, each prayer probably uh, came with a, an attack against it. It took the devil three times to exhaust himself on the Mount of Temptation. It appears that he made three efforts to stop the Son of God in Gethsemane. But I praise the Lord that in three days he rose again, right? He couldn't stop him. I was thinking about the song, He Cannot Be Stopped, right? The Lord cannot be stopped. And when you see patterns like this, you know that the Lord is speaking to us. He tried three times and it didn't work. He tried three more times. Then for three days, he might have thought for a moment, oh, I've got him this time. But on that third day at the last hour, Jesus ascended. Amen. He was resurrected. Oh, he did it all for you and for me. And that should excite us tonight that we have a hope. And his name is Jesus. As Jesus concluded his prayer, he expressed absolute obedience to the Father's will in his life. He didn't want to be separated from his Father. He didn't desire to experience his Father's wrath at all. He didn't want to become sin, but he did it willingly. He did it because it was the Father's plan for his life. Do you know tonight that the Lord has a plan for each and every one of us? And it might not look like anything that we ever imagined, but if we will submit ourselves unto him, it will be the best plan. <laughs> It'll be the best road that you and I could ever take, right? The words, I will and thou wilt, let us know that this was a true time of testing for the Savior. Jesus was sinless. We know that. He was unable to sin. But he faced a time of severe Temptation, Hebrews 4 and 15, tells us, For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He did it, right? Just as he had on the Mount of Temptation three and a half years earlier, he won a great victory by remaining submissive to the Father's will. He, his temptation, temptation just as always is our temptation, and that's to leave the prescribed will of God, to do it a different way. But there is but one way. There's only one way. Only one way. 
All temptation that we face in our life, it all boils down to trying to go another way other than what the Lord has prescribed for us to go. Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And I just want to say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that you prevailed in Gethsemane. You could have walked away. He could have walked away from us that night. No one was forcing him to do what he did, but he did it willingly so that we might be saved. Verses 37 through 41, we find out where the priorities are. I'm trying to hurry so I can finish. Jesus prayed in the garden that night. Two sets of priorities are being played out. And these priorities kind of contrast one another between sin, the sinless Savior and sinful men. We see how sinful and how weak and how frail we truly are. Jesus had one overriding, overarching priority in his life. He lived to do the will of the Father. When he was 12 years old, he said in Luke 2.49, uh, wished you not that I must be about my father's business. Later, he said uh, in John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then John 6 and 38 says, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's his heartbeat to always do the will of the Father. The cross of Calvary and the death of Christ on the cross was never in question. His, uh, Jesus came to this world to die for sin and sinners, and that's what he did. He died on the cross for you and for me. While Jesus is praying and wrestling with the greatest load any man had ever tried to carry, the disciples are asleep. I think about the church today. We are facing the greatest onslaught of attacks that the church has really ever faced. But I believe the church has been asleep and is maybe, maybe kind of starting to wake up. But we better wake up. We better realize what's at stake what is very rapidly, just like the events of this night, they rapidly took place. How quickly church as we know it, freedom as we know it, is being taken from us. While we just think everything's all great and glorious, there is a battle going on. I mean, it's not too far from us. Uh, pastor after pastor is being arrested in Canada for what they call hate speech speaking out uh, against homosexuality, taking a stand on the word of God. It's coming to a church near you here in the United States. The Equality Act that I talked about Sunday morning, that's exactly what this is bringing in to America so that pastors can start being arrested. Uh, Daryl and I were talking about it before service. I mean... We're a prime target. <laughs> Our messages are out there. But I take great comfort in knowing that if God be for us, who can be against us? And in these greatest times of attack, we're going to be awake. We're going to watch. We're going to sound the alarm. 
And though we see the attacks coming, we know what lies ahead. We're going to keep on preaching. We're going to keep on standing on the word of God. So again, while Jesus was doing all of this, the disciples were asleep. Our Lord's priority was the will of the Father, and their priority was themselves and their own needs. Right? Now, in their defense, yes, it was late. It was after midnight. And sometimes sleep can be an escape for us when we're worried or, or depressed and frustrated. So that is all a possibility, but even if that is an excuse, it does not excuse the commandment that was given to them to watch. The same commandment that's been given to the church at this very moment, to watch and to pray Jesus, in verse 37, returns to find them asleep. And I want you to notice that he doesn't call Peter, Peter. He calls him Simon. Why? Because he's acting like the old man. He's not realizing the importance of why, in the first place, Jesus asked him and James and John to come with him deeper into Gethsemane. I've called you for such a time as this. He's called Lakeside Church for such a time as this, not to be weary, not to, to sleep, not to be comfortable, but to break custom, right? That, that's been a reoccurring theme. But to do whatever we've got to do to see to it that the gospel goes forth, that souls are saved, that lives are changed, that saints are strengthened by the power of God's word. He's called us to watch, to be on guard, to hearken, right? So he called him Simon, the old name, instead of Peter, because he wasn't acting like the rock that Jesus had declared him to be. Peter had just boasted that he was willing to die with Jesus, and now he can't even stay, uh, can't even stay awake a while to pray. He can't even stay awake for an hour to pray. I want to tell you, and you know this, and I want to remind you that probably your greatest times of attack is when you go to pray. You notice how tired you get? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have uh, 24 hours of prayer uh, next Friday. But I want to tell you, if you will purpose in your heart that you're going to pray an hour. Oh, the Lord will come in. The Holy Spirit will give you strength like never before. And you will commune with the Lord. It'll be a great time with the Lord. But greatest attacks come when you open the word of God and when you go to prayer. You all of a sudden can't quit yawning. Your mind's in a million different places, right? That's why you have to ask the Lord to help you in that because the enemy wants to fight you in that. Jesus warns his men to be watchful and prayerful because a time of temptation and trial is coming their way and they're going to need spiritual help to make it through. Little did they know how soon that prediction would be fulfilled. Jesus goes away uh, twice more and each time he returns and finds them sleeping. He prays a total of three times this passage tells us that his men walked under a different set of priorities than he did. He lived to fulfill his father's will, and they lived to gratify themselves and meet their own needs. Right? Imagine how their failure to stand with him in his hardest hour must have added to his pain 
and sense of loneliness, right? So the lesson from this passage is clear. Jesus achieved victory because he was vigilant and diligent in prayer, right? But his men faced failure because they leaned onto themselves and not to the Father. If we want to enjoy victory in our times of temptation and testing, then we must learn to lean on the Lord in his power. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Right? We've got to surrender to his power and his control in our lives if we want to be successful as we live for him and walk this life here in the flesh. Right? We need him. So tonight, I just want us to take a moment Next week is going to be even heavier. We're nearing the end. We're, we're nearing Jesus going to the cross. We're right before it in this passage. But of anything that this makes me feel is thankful. When I think about all the Lord has done for me, all I can say is thank you, Lord. I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. So tonight as you stand... The music's going to play, and I'm just going to ask you just to come, spend a few moments, not asking for anything, but telling him thank you. How you saved me. Thankful, Lord, for salvation, for healing, for all the things that you know the Lord has done for you. Just come and spend a few moments around these altars telling him thank you.
Lord, we thank you tonight. As the song says, we just want to shout hallelujah. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, for all that you've already done for us, Lord. And if you don't do another thing, Lord, God, we didn't deserve anything to begin with, Lord. And we just thank you, God. We thank you for Calvary, Lord, for what you willingly did for whosoever will, Lord. I pray that tonight, Lord, you would continue to, to stir up our hearts, Lord, with that, that gratitude, that thankfulness, Lord. God, we could never repay you, Lord, but we can share you. We can share the hope of Jesus Christ, the gospel, Lord. God, motivate us, Lord, to just to remember, to think about what you've done for us should be enough motivation for us to go and tell others of your goodness, of your grace, and your mercy, Lord. I pray that you just be with us tonight as we go our separate ways. Bring us all back together at the next appointed time. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I failed to mention that we will have online Bible study tomorrow at 10 a.m. We had to change it from Tuesday to tomorrow. Um, so tune in, be with us for our Galatians Bible study, then Friday morning Bible study at 9 a.m. Uh, they're still in the book of Romans. Eight, chapter eight. Okay, you're getting there. So uh, come out and be a part of that. We love you guys. Be blessed, and we'll see you on Sunday.